Morning. Um, I'm talking about um, another predisposition today, this time a predisposition to chronic disease, and it's our favourite, obesity. Now, I think I might start by saying obesity is nothing new, and it's not something that, and body fatness is not something new, and it's not something that's peculiar to our species. I was feeding the guinea pigs this morning. This is what happens. You inherit pets from children who then forget to look after them. And I was watching them, and they can't feed them enough at the moment. It's as though winter's coming, and they're ready to puff up, and they just want to, you know, get, get, you know, get a good load on board, um, um, you know, ready for winter. Uh, they've experienced a number of winters, and, uh, and they kind of uh, know what's good for them. So... Uh, Humans are mammals, and there's a lot of biology that goes with obesity that is common to mammals. I'm going to talk about that next term in relation to feeding and and nutrition. But today, I'm really going to do a a kind of landscape-setting talk. And uh, a lot of this stuff you kind of know or intuitively know or know through the media and so on. But I'll start off by... This is an American plane that's been brought down over Libya. And, uh, and here are Libyans looking over the thing. Okay. Uh, symbolizing, I suppose, obesity as a plane crash, which is a metaphor I quite like to use a lot. Okay? It's not something anybody wants. It's a whole range of things that come together and you say, oh, here it is. Uh, there's a long history of people who... Um, are particularly well uh, embodied in terms of body fatness. Um, Daniel Lambert in the um, uh, 1700s, the portraits of him, he was a, a landowner in Leicestershire in the UK, particularly large. But you think about something, uh, obesity in past populations would have been among the wealthy, would have been among those who might well have been genetically predisposed if we had the instrumentation to be able to know that that was the case. Uh, in the present day, this plane crash landed probably from the 1960s onwards. People started to realise that this was, this was an emergent phenomenon. It wasn't taken seriously for a long, long time. And it was suddenly, we need to have policies about this. Probably from the late 1970s, um, it became a serious um, uh, public health-related issue. And then the whole world was playing catch-up because... The conditions under which obesity emerged were already in place, and we're still playing catch-up, and I would argue that obesity is an outcome of processes of modernity and of modernization. Modernity in the West, where a number of things have come together, um, that now predispose to to the emergence of uh, obesity. So I'm going to give the answer first, so we don't need to be burdened by it. And then we, can, uh, then we can go on. So as a multi-hit model, we've got many multi-hit models in relation to disease. We can start with thinking about uh, undernutrition and infection and then the condition of Kwashiorkor that needs many different factors to come together for it to, be, uh, for it to, for, for it to manifest itself. Uh, we can think of cancers which need predispositions and a range of environmental factors for those predispositions to emerge as another. We can think of cardiovascular disease in a similar way. We can think about obesity in a similar way. First of all, a genetic predisposition. 
this is a tough one because uh, I could argue that the majority of people in this room are genetically predisposed to obesity. Um, that given the right conditions, most people could put on weight very easily. There'll be a small number of very annoying people, like the man in the lime green jacket, who can eat anything and he will not put on weight. In the present day circumstances, he is blessed and cursed by everybody else. So, count your blessing. A pre genetic predisposition counts for nothing if the conditions for uh, the expression of obesity uh, can't be manifested. So there needs to be uh, circumstances whereby food is cheap and can be plentiful. So the irony of ensuring caloric food security, energy food security across the second part of the 20th century, coupled with inequality, has led to the possibility of widespread obesity for some and undernutrition for others. If it were a level playing field, you could argue that improving food security, caloric energy food security across the second part of the 20th century would have uh, ensured prosperity, embodied nutritional prosperity for the majority of the world's population. So that is not the case. Because with modernization, with the emergent market liberalism that has come in the late part of the 20th century, this not only perpetuates inequality, it needs inequality to be able to function. That is just the nature of capitalism. It, the poorest person needs to be able to find a profit of one cent on a Coca-Cola bottle in India to be able to use that to run a business. The multi-multi-billionaire can't find a profit in one cent, personally. So it has to find ways of cranking up that profit from, from other places. It's not worth your while to make a one cent profit on a bottle, on an empty bottle. But there are many people in the world for whom it is an advantage. So we have this modernized system, cheap food, an industrialized food supply. That's not a bad thing. All of you can go to a store, buy something, and feel secure that it is not going to give you food poisoning, that it is not going to give you arsenic poisoning. It's not going to be loaded with contaminants. And that's part of an industrialized food supply. The health and safety aspect of that is brilliant, absolutely marvelous, incredible. We can take this for granted. If you have the pennies in your pocket, you can buy food. It's all around you. It's everywhere. So the industrialized food supply is particular in a particular way. It's particular in that storage is a key thing. Storage and transportation are key things. Being able to move food around are key things. So the things that can be moved around most readily are the things that can store best. Things that are dry, cereals, fats, sugars, anything that can be refined and cannot deteriorate very easily can, be, can, can become very cheap. So the 
caloric um, uh, food security is underpinned by being able to produce staples very cheaply. That's not a bad thing in itself. The United States food supply and the United States economic success in urbanizing places that hadn't previously been urbanized in being able to develop faster than, than Europe across much of the 20th century was underpinned by an industrialized food supply that could deliver earlier, better, faster than anywhere else on the planet. And that was a key decision that was made early in the 20th century. No idea that this would predispose to, to obesity. Post-1930s, with the, with the farm bill, the idea and, and, and industrialization of, 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 uh, of the food system, all of that was about being able to underpin food security in the American cities, being able to underpin you know, food supplies, cheap food to laborers, people working in, 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 uh, in the cities. All good and admirable, thing, admirable things. Nothing wrong with any of that. Then we have the mechanization of everyday life. Who cycled today? Yay! Good people, good people. Okay, me too, me too. I only just got, re- only just got wet because I, I, uh, I caught the last 10 minutes of the rain. Anyway, who's got the off button? Switch the rain off. That's <laughs> what we need. We need the off button. Uh, Oxford's odd in that an awful lot of people are physically active in very mundane and day-to-day ways. A bicycle is actually the best thing to get around in the city in terms of A to B without getting stuck in traffic. If you have a motor car and you try and get through Oxford, you've got the problems of the traffic. I live 10 kilometers from here. It's faster for me to cycle than it is to bring my car in. It's not worth it for me. It's, unless there are other reasons, unless there are three or more people coming in and saying, what are, whatever these other reasons are, then finding a car park, then getting through Oxford, then finding you can't park where you want to park, then finding you've got a half-hour slot. There's all kinds of issues that get in the way. So in terms of the efficiency for a motor car, it's terrible. But in terms of human uh, well-being, it's incredible. It's good. It's marvellous because it says no to further mechanisation. However, you're sitting down, some of you are using computers, and you take sitting down with a computer as being your default option. Can't avoid computers because these are our mediators to everyday life, to our education, to the work we do, to our social circles, everything else. Those are fundamental. But sitting down should not be a default option. If you ever go to Bologna, which I recommend you do once in your life, it's the most marvellous city, and I have friends and collaborators there, and I'm there you know, at least once a year, sometimes three times, like this year. And there's the medieval museum. Go to the medieval museum and just look, because Bologna is the oldest university on the planet. And they, they have... Um, tomb carvings of some of the great scholars from the, you know, from the 13th century onwards, and you see these people standing at their podium. You know, the scholars were actually standing at their podium. Sitting was not a natural option. It's a very recent thing. So we've, 
taken the most convenient route. And when you put these things together, it's little surprise that obesity starts to emerge. So, having got that out of the way, I'm going to now talk about obesity from two perspectives. Epidemiological and rates. And my starting point is that actually looking at the rates is something you can do in your spare time. There's a very simple thing. Rates are going up for adults pretty well everywhere and are continuing to increase. For children, they have plateaued in a number of places, particularly in Europe and the United States, in recent years. The way in which the rates continue to increase across the world is idiosyncratic. So for Italy, for example, childhood rates have continued to increase while they're remaining pretty flat, flatlining for adults. Ask an Italian why that should be. The answer I got once flippantly was vanity. Put that together with the fashion industry and you start to see how things might, people might construct their bodies in Italy differently to the United Kingdom and the United States, for example, as generalities. The way in which it's produced in different countries is different and idiosyncratic. So understanding obesity in South Africa is going to be very different to understanding in the United States, in the United Kingdom, understanding it in France, Italy, uh, Japan, China, Malaysia, Brazil. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Everywhere, everywhere. And so you can't come to a research universal about how obesity is produced in one country, say the country that has got the greatest amount and the best research, shall we say, United States, and say, this is the model for obesity production in the United States, and we can move this model across the planet. We can't, because it's produced very differently in different places. Largely because environmental factors differ, um, economic factors differ, Process of inequality and security also differ, and many, many other factors. Um, to date, well, there's over 100 factors that have been linked to obesity, and they're nonlinear. We'll talk more about that. Okay, I'll start, first of all, by saying, well, what is obesity? It's a medical term. And so to be clear, every time you use the term obesity, you are talking about a, a biomedical term. Fatness, body fatness, is a much more neutral way of talking about this particular issue. Ask a clinician and it will be excessive fatness. Excessive fatness and for whom? In some spheres of anthropology, critical fat studies, they say, well, actually the issue of obesity has been constructed. Having been constructed, it's then a way of being able to control people's bodies. People become self-regulated in a very Foucauldian kind of way, and it's all bad, bad, bad. However, on the medical side, people who have excess fatness, however defined, are at greater risk of disease and death. It's also clear from the literature that a lot of people who carry excess fatness, whatever that might be, is that they don't live their lives as fully and as well as people who don't carry excess fatness, for example. It also <coughs> relates to reproduction, and that is uh, obese women will have 
Children who have high birth weight and a greater risk of type 2 diabetes, which I'll talk about next time, for example. It also impacts on life chances. Somebody who's overweight or obese is less likely to get a job when they're interviewed because of the perceptions about a, a hugely overweight person in terms of you know, their ability to, to think and their ability to work. Um, it also affects promotions, that in many places there's a glass ceiling on being promoted if you're overweight or obese. So all of these things link together. And then, of course, aesthetics and body ideals. These are one of the things that make things hugely problematic. You have your own body, and I'll bet you the majority of women in this room are not happy with their body. I'm not going to ask. I don't want to ask. Uh, and there are bodily ideals that are driven by the fashion industry, by the media, that create certain kinds of things, airbrush realities, that cannot be met through straightforward, everyday body manipulations, like physical activity and diet. They cannot be met. The women who can meet those ideals, <clears throat> who are the celebrity models and so on, their job is to have that bodily ideal. And therefore, they can invest totally in the entire production system that will allow that person to have that body. So, you know, with gyms and diets and personal trainers and, you know, the whole industry that goes with that. Everyday people cannot meet those things. When you get into the medical literature and start to biomedical literature and think about definitions of obesity, what is excess body fatness? Again, and you come to a number of contradictions and a number of ways of thinking about it. First of all, fatness and fat patterning. It's not so much about how much fat you have, but where that fat is deposited. And now the literature is moving. There's a workshop next Thursday on frameworks of obesity. If you can't come to any else of it, come to at least two talks. One is by Frederick Carper, who's talking about different kinds of fatness, different kinds of adipose tissue. And the other one is by Jane Wardle, who's talking about, about inequality, both total experts in their field. Uh, and where you deposit fat matters, because adipose tissue, body fatness, is not one thing. There's many different kinds of things. Most importantly, the fat, around, the, the fat you put around your waist, internal fatness, visceral fatness, is metabolically active, and it's the one that predisposes most to chronic disease. You could look fat on the outside, but if you're thin on the inside, it'd be okay. Things like body mass index can't work that out for you. Things like relative weight can't work that out for you, but at the population level, they can give you huge amounts of data at the population levels. One of the issues with the use of body mass index is that it works pretty well at the population level and if you're comparing different groups. But then, if who has measured knows their own body mass index? Put your hands up. A few people do. Actually, quite a few people do, more or less. Who knows their weight? A few more people. Okay. Um, at the individual level, if you take body mass index, you know, my body mass index is over 25. 
that makes me overweight in terms of international, international standards. I ain't bothered about that. I've lived long enough to not worry about that. Uh, aesthetically, I'm not too bothered about how I look anymore. And in terms, of, in, in terms of health, it doesn't actually carry that much additional health risk. Part of the aesthetics of body mass index are that being overweight doesn't carry a great deal of extra health risk, even at the population level. Body mass index of 30 carries a lot more health risk. So placing overweight at 25, body mass index of 25, is something that is seen as being preemptive. People who creep up to 25 and then creep up to 30 and then suddenly there are problems. Try and avoid that in the first place. Uh, there are also aesthetic considerations in this because a body mass index of over 25 is probably more displeasing aesthetically than it is, in the, the, than it is a health risk. So all of those things. I'm going to whip through a different, few different things in terms of the clinical gaze. Ask a clinician who sees patients on a regular basis, and they'll say, I don't really need body mass index. I measure it. They measure it in the UK because it's important for government reporting. A clinician sees somebody and says, uh, I think you should lose some weight. They're not actually looking at body mass index. They're not going, they'll go to the charts, but actually a clinician will say, oh, look, I can tell. I don't need this. There's a whole bunch of ways in which one can, one can measure fatness, and this is where you start to hit some problems, because uh, how do you, what are the assumptions based on which you base body fatness? Underwater waves, like witch dunking, you submerge somebody in water, you get them to breathe nitrogen, so you know the volume of the lungs, you know the density of fat, you know the density of muscle, you know how much, much they weigh, you know how much, much water they displace, and so you can estimate body fatness from that. But that's a research device. You don't do that every morning. At least I don't. <clears throat> Isotope dilution, looking at deuterium oxide and looking where deuterium is taken into lean tissue in relation to body mass and, uh, and, and, and body volume can give you an estimated body fatness. A uh, problem with isotope dilution is that standardizing both isotope dilution and imaging methods, which can give you pictures that turn it into percentages of body fat, is problematic. And you can't actually do a cadaver analysis of body fatness in a human. You can't have a study where you say, Can I have a victim? Yeah. Okay, Michael, stand up. Okay, we're going to do a study. It's completely non-ethical. Um, we're going to uh, weigh you. We're going to measure your height. We're going to measure your skin folds. We're going to dunk you in an underwater weighing device. We're going to do some isotope dilution. We're going to image you so we know every aspect of your body fatness. And oh, by the way, at the end of it, we'll kill you. And then we'll do a cadaver analysis. Are you up for that? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, thanks, Michael. Um, <clears throat> You cannot, the gold standard is against actually anatomically knowing how much fat there is and where that fat is, thanks. Um, today, the best measure is Michael Gorham's pigs. Michael Gorham was for a long time in Alabama. Actually, we did biochemistry a year apart, and we never met, but actually we're good friends now. Um, 
And what he did, he, in Alabama, it's a lot of pigs. A lot of people, a big pig industry. So he capitalized on the pig industry in Alabama. He used to take pigs and put them through his imaging device, device to dilution, everything else. Said, well, close as, close as, you know. A pig, Michael Gorham, close as. Which one's which? I can't tell. Sorry, Michael. Um, I know you can take it. In many ways, the anatomy of a pig in terms of body fatness isn't too dissimilar for a hum- from, for, from a human. But it's not actually a human. So even the gold standard for understanding body fatness <coughs> is based on an assumption about the anatomical similarity between, between, uh, between humans and pigs. Okay, relative weight, body mass index, relative weight. Tables of relative weight, weight for age, weight for height, body mass index, all have been used. The classical one is the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company, standard weight height tables for men and women, which was revised in the 1980s. They're called desirable weight according to different, according to different frames. Um, so you know how tall somebody is, you know what they weigh, and you've kind of got an idea of how much, how much they should weigh. The success of this is the fact that the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company has grown from that building to that building plus these buildings as well. So the fact that they, this insurance company is still in business means that their predictions of mortality on the basis of weight and a large number of other things is pretty successful. So on the basis of measuring huge numbers of people we know that relative weight kind of works at a big population level. If it didn't work, they wouldn't be insuring properly. They'd be paying a lot, a, out a lot more, a lot earlier, because people would be dying earlier than, uh, than would be predicted on the basis of their weight and height and a whole range of, a whole range of uh, uh, other, other issues. They continue to be used. Skin folds, <coughs> I'd say pretty well, <coughs> are less functionally important. Because for two reasons. They're in the literature, but they measure subcutaneous fat. That's fat deposits. That's not metabolically active fat. That's largely fat insulation. Good for some things, but not very good. You wouldn't use, and they're not used, they're not used, used clinically. So the, the, the classical sites, back of the arm, arm and, and the back, subscapular. So if you can reach up there, just pinch your back. That's the one you measure, more or less. And they're representative of, uh, of peripheral uh, uh, limb fat and, of, and of, of, of trunk fat, respectively. So there are different references for that. Yeah? What? Which one? Is, I can't hear. So how do you percentages? The percentages. These are percentage body fat based on skin folds. So there are regression equations from which you can use skin folds to estimate percentage body fat. And those regression equations come from the relationship between underwater weighing or isotope dilution and, and, and skin folds. So you can measure skin folds and you can estimate percentage body fat from those. There's an awful lot of prediction goes on in these fields. So does that make some sense? So, so you, you, you know, for example, there's athletics use use regressions that, that might have four, five, or six different skin folds. You put those, into, you put those measures into a, into a regression equation, and it'll give you percentage body fat. But all of that has been related to, um, to uh, another measure of estimating percentage body fat. So I missed that, so thank you. <coughs> Waist circumference is probably better. Literally a few years ago, uh, the World Health Organization proposed that uh, waist circumference 
might well displace body mass index as a measure of, uh, of obesity. And there's still evidence needed to be able to validate that. But uh, its basis is better than body mass index because it measures largely visceral fatness, and this is the stuff that can do you damage. Right? Men carry beer guts if they drink beer, too much of it. And uh, this is internal fat. But the good thing about internal fat is this is quite relatively easily mobilized. So, for example, physical activity will mobilize internal fat faster than it mobilizes visceral, uh, uh, external fat. So you could have, putatively, high body mass index, a predisposition for a large waist circumference, as many men do, but also be very physically active, which reduces that predisposition. So all of those things could be happening at the same time. So even these measures are not independent, isolated measures. They are in relation to, in relation to, in relation to context. Um, there's a Japanese man being measured. There are some companies in Japan that measure a whole range of health, annual health measures. And if you creep into the overweight category in Japan, then it's taken into consideration for future promotions. So it's not just that there's a visible ceiling on pr promotion, that is that there's a stigma against somebody who's overweight. There's actually a very clear institutional uh, additional barrier to, to, to promotion. If you can't look after yourself, how can you look after the accounts is the, is the kind of logic. You also see a similar kind of logic with American presidents now, for example. So Taft was probably the last seriously obese president when they widened the doors of the, of the Oval Office so he could comfortably get through. And when was that? 1911? Exactly 1911. 1911. 1912. Got our constitutional expert here. No, no, no. Around that time, before World War I, you can say for sure. Okay, thank you. Uh, but since then, I mean, what do presidents do now? You want a lean president. You know, because, you know, if, if, and presidents of corporations, you look at them and say, you know, could this be the president of a corporation? If you look after yourself, you can look after other things. So the discipline comes from the body and then to everywhere else. Um, okay, that's just a mark of visceral fatness. Um, here, this is from uh, Jimmy Bell. He's an imager, body fat imager in London. And by way of illustration, it says two people with the same BMI could have different levels of visceral fatness. This is two people that were, that, were, that were measured within a large sample and said, well, compare those two. Same BMI, same health risk, body mass index looking in the healthy range. And yet one is at risk of metabolic disease and the other person isn't. That's one of the issues with, with body mass index. Body mass index norms, the World Health has them. And you probably know them and internalize them. 18.5 to 25 is the normal range. More than 25 is overweight. Uh, that's called pre-obese. Now, that's assuming that people who are, uh, become overweight go on to develop, uh, uh, put on yet more fatness, which is not automatic. At the population level, that's generally true, but at the individual level, it's not. People yo-yo. Their body weight yo-yos across the whole of their life in relation to life events. I mean, goodness me. 
uh, people get married, they put on weight because, you know, because everybody's nice and calm and, you know, they have done. Why is it not different from men and women? Sorry? Why is it not different from men and women? That is a good question. I think it's because the, the health risk of, um, of body fatness and women, while they carry greater, greater body fatness, is, is um, um, mediated by, uh, by uh, um, sex hormones, female endocrinology. So the health risk associated with the level of body fatness in women is lower, is lowered because, um, uh, because of the protective effects of estrogen and, and, and so on. Those protective effects decline um, uh, post-menopause. Yeah. Okay, now body mass index is accepted. Why is it accepted? Uh, because for the first time in a long time, we actually know how much obesity there is. Before 1997, there was no idea about the relative proportions of the populations that were obese in different parts of the world, in different countries. Uh, so a unified global, global reporting of, of obesity from 1997 was an expert consultation which identified the lack of nationally representative cross-sectional data as an obstacle to facilitating international comparisons um, of man and monitoring the magnitude of current and future obesity problems and evaluating the effectiveness of intervention strategies. So from 1997 onwards, charts like this could be constructed. And you get some surprises. So you, there's a general trope that obesity is highest in the United States, or at least it was at the time. Obesity was reported at a higher cutoff point before then. There were different criteria for assessing obesity. Some places used relative weight, some places used body mass index, and so there were different ways of reporting. Different places, you couldn't compare anything because the cutoffs were different, the criteria were different, some places used centiles, and so on. <clears throat> so it was a way to unify, and of course, the big shock was that what came out as number, number one, two, and three, <clears throat> this chart with Nauru, Amy, put your hand up. Nauru. Madam Nauru, she's worked in Nauru. Um, Cook Islands, number two, I've worked on the Cooks. And French Polynesia, number three. Tiny, tiny places where the obesity issues far exceeded those of, of, of the Western nations. Astonishing. Astonishing but clearly, clearly there. That means you couldn't take a straightforward industrial model of obesity emergence through a narrative of how obesity emerged in the United States to apply it to other places because, <clears throat> you know, things happen differently on Nauru, don't they, Amy? Yes, they do. They certainly do. And on the cooks. Sometimes you scratch your head and wonder, how did that happen? Or, better still, what just happened? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Very calm, very calm. And then, you know, you go, you go down the list and you find places like Kuwait, Bahrain, Hungary is way up there. Okay, communist country, country that's just transitioned out of communism, huge levels of obesity. Again, the models would do, westernization would predict you wouldn't expect so much obesity in those countries. Then you have... Um, South Africa with high levels. So this was a way of standardising how this was all done. Now you can go to places like that, the International Obesity Task Force website, and you'll find interactive maps, and you can just play with that and say, oh, I'm really interested in Russia, let's go take a look at Russia. So dig into Russia, say, well, let's go and 
go to South Africa, take a look at South Africa. And then you can say, well, I'm going to go to Mexico on my vacation. Let's take a look at Mexico. So you can, you know, flip around. So just find that. It's just spend five minutes with it, and it'll tell you everything you need. The only thing I can tell you is that these maps are constantly changing, generally, as I've said, in an upward way. Body mass index equivalent for children. This is controversial, but it's been accepted. That is, the cutoff points of 25 and 30 for overweight and obesity have been um, predicted backwards to childhood, acknowledging that you know children are smaller and the relationships between weight and height vary across across age, and the relationship a body mass index of, of 25 for a young child is going to mean something very different to that of, a, to that of an adult. So, for example, you get here a child with body mass index 25 at the age of 10, they would be off the chart in terms of obesity uh, in, 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 this, uh, in this chart, but if you were to just use the adult cutoff point, they would seem to be okay. So this has been regressed backwards. There are problems because the data sets that we use, Brazil, United Kingdom, Netherlands, Hong Kong, Singapore, United States, Canada, France, Russia, Sweden, uh, were all had different characteristics, body mass index characteristics. And this has homogenized all of that. So that's one of the problems with this. Again, it's okay for an average. It's not so good if you take an individual child and plot them on that chart. So you get lots of false negatives and false positives, as you, as you, uh, as you would appreciate. But there are similar child pre- uh, measures, charts for prevalence of child overweight. Now, here is a sleight of hand. Okay. For adults, it's obesity. And we think, okay, obesity, body mass index more than 30. Most of the literature about children is in relation to overweight and not obesity. Obese children are far less common than obese adults, which is not difficult to understand because it takes a while to develop obesity. Sometimes it's a lifetime project. But when you read media accounts about um, childhood obesity, they will take figures for overweight and call those obesity. So it becomes a very muddied kind of field. Yeah. What is the like, threshold point for when a child becomes an adult? Like, is it when they go through puberty? Is that some fact how it's changed so much? Usually it's a very institutional one, which is the institution of moving from school to university. <laughs> um, and that's usually, usually that's around the age of 18. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it, and, and that measure has been sort of universalized, that it's, it's kind of the ideal age. Even though if you're a poor person in South Africa, you might only become a physical adult at the age of 22, 23, or 24 years, even though that may be delayed. It's become uh, an institutional measure. So there's all kinds of issues with the boundaries that they're put around fatness, age, life stages, and so on. Okay, Finucane et al. produced a paper on global trends in body mass index since 1980. It's not consistent. Um, in North America, high-income people, it's going up. In Oceania, it's going up faster than anywhere else on the planet. Central Latin America, that is Mexico and the countries around there, going up for males and females. But if you look in other places, there is no consistency in the rates of increase. Go to this, go to this, uh, go to this um, uh, paper and have a look at it. 
Uh, the fastest rates of increase have been in the Pacific, and this stimulated Amy, myself, and up again to write a paper about obesity emergence, because a lot was made of essentializing Pacific Islanders' genetic predisposition to obesity uh, before, uh, before that time. And actually, we both spent long enough in these two particular Pacific Island nations for which the world data on the Pacific is driven. Two little islands driving Finney Kane's paper saying it's alarming. There's actually two sets of data. And you know what? One of those sets of data is mine. And, and, and I know how inadequate that data is and how much better it could have been collected and how small the samples are and, and all the rest of it. So you get two small island populations with a limited amount of data that is driving the world in terms of using exactly the same model in predicting obesity rates. So there are problems in understanding and interpreting the epidemiology figures because when they crunch down these numbers for meta-analysis, the sample sizes can vary enormously, and size, I believe, matters. Okay, so that was obesity emergence in the Pacific Islands. to understand the colonial history and social change is important. And this was the headline that the Daily Telegraph took out of this British-made Pacific Islanders fat by civilizing them with fat food, uh, fried food. Uh, that was the most trivial part of the whole paper. It happened to be uh, the case that good nutrition for the British at that time was really moving them off using raw fish, for example, to moving them to frying fish. That's a major, major victory. And uh, to, to, uh, to, towards the naturalized patterns, dietary patterns of the colonizer. The larger principle is that colonial history matters in obesity studies because some of these naturalized food practices would have come from colonial practice. So, you know, why would you expect to get a a good Victoria sponge in Kenya? It's because British colonizers instituted domestic science studies that showed that baking a perfect Victoria sponge was was, uh, an ideal of perfection, and so it becomes naturalized as part of the diet in in part of Kenya. I'm trivializing a little bit. But traditions get lost, preparation preservation skills get lost, and Western ways of eating start to become imposed, not just in the last 50 years. Actually, go back 100 years, go back 150 years. Many of these things have a deep history, and, and they're important. Obesity increases everywhere on the planet. I think I can just skip these slides because you know the story is upwards and upwards and you can find all of this. Um, The story about stabilization of weight is interesting. And uh, Tim Olds, um, good Adelaide boy, actually. Yeah, hands up, Adelaide. Yeah, go Adelaide. Sorry? I bet you are. Evidence that prevalence of childhood obesity is plateauing from nine countries. In France, it's plateauing. Um, in the Netherlands, it's plateauing. The United States, Switzerland, declining. Sweden, it's plateaued. New Zealand, China, and Australia. This is childhood, overweight plus obesity, not in adults. And in many of these places, the, the plateauing has happened since around the year 2000. That is, there is some response probably based in parental responsibility towards improving the health and nutrition of children. But I would emphasize these are average figures. And the reason why they've plateaued isn't epidemiologically pinned down. 
my good friend of 30 years, Marie-Françoise Roland Cachira, who was the lead obesity epidemiologist for France, who retired just last year, just this year actually, um, said, well, the figures are encouraging, but we don't know why. We'd like to think it's because of our programs. We'd like to think it's because of the multisectoral nature. We'd like to think it's because we pick up obesity, potential obesity, early in France relative to other countries. But we can't pin it down to any particular thing because we do not have a single public health intervention evaluation that would allow us to do it because it's too complex. So whatever happens, even when, and I believe it's a when, obesity rates decline, there will be no good answer as to why, unless the sophistication in which obesity evaluations are carried out improves dramatically, which of course it may and should. In the UK, I've done some preliminary analysis from the child measurement program that suggests that this plateauing is actually can be dissected into two parts. Overweight rates have declined among wealthier people and continue to increase among richer people. So these averages might actually mask inequalities, and certainly preliminary data from the UK suggests that that's the case. So even this plateauing is no sign of comfort, because you need to understand how that could be, could be uh, taken apart. Health risks are many, and you can go to these literature. There are a number of J-curves uh, described about the relative risk of mortality um, by BMI, and that it increases in a J-shaped fashion. Really, the risk starts to increase much more rapidly when you get to a body mass index of more than 30. The range between 25 and 30 is largely, largely uh, uh, small uh, relative to that of uh, BMI more than 30. The health risk associated with high excess body fatness, however you want to call it, is most importantly in respect of type 2 diabetes, to the extent that the metabolic predisposition to obesity, excess body fatness, and type 2 diabetes share so many things. They share a physiology, they have overlap in genetics, so the genetic predisposition, which, is, which works its way through the physiology, overlaps hugely. So in many places, the physiologists that work on diabetes and obesity would even be talking in terms of diobesity, the two things being pretty well the same thing. Of course, coronary heart disease, not just because of overweight, but because of the diets that go with being overweight. That is, if somebody becomes overweight, they're likely to consume a, fat, a diet that may be high in saturated fat, maybe high, um, high in salt, maybe high in many fellow travelers that uh, associate with, uh, with um, uh, cardiovascular disease. They may also smoke. They may also be physically inactive. So all the risks that, 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 uh, that surround it are not just in relation to obesity. It's a whole range of, whole range of other, other factors. And the same goes for cancers. It's not just about overweight. It's about the diets that people consume that brings them to the point of carrying excess body fatness. With respect to children, of course, children don't die of obesity, usually. Uh, they don't usually even get the diseases that are related to obesity. Most children are not obese. Uh, 
um, most are if, if there's is more likely to be overweight than obese. So the debate moves to the risk factors for cardiovascular disease for type 2 diabetes, which can be severely elevated among the children who are obese. That is the tiny number of children who are not just overweight but are would be rated as clinically obese on the basis of the cold charts that I showed you that regressed backwards, body mass index backwards. You need to be very, very careful. These are not alarmist pictures. These are the small proportion of children who become obese, who then have elevated risk. So the risk becomes very much focused in a tiny, tiny proportion of children. That's still important, of course. Um, I'm not going to dwell on that. Obesity in pregnancy. takes us back to anthropology a little bit because we're thinking about the relationships between uh, fertility and survivorship, um, not just of the mother but of children. So obesity in pregnancy is associated with fertility. Um, It's associated with first trimester spontaneous abortion. It's associated with gestational diabetes, greater risk of of, uh, of type 2 diabetes for the women, but also for the, for, for the children. Hypertension, um, stillbirth, prolonged labor, increased likelihood of cesarean births, a whole range of both uh, metabolic disorders associated with obesity that can, that, that can be transmitted to the child, but also uh, issues associated with child bearing, actually having the child, physical issues of childbearing. Now you can imagine a caesarean birth in an obese woman is no trivial thing, that in fact it requires a level of, of, of expertise to be able to mechanically um, deliver a child in, you know, very, in, in very, difficult, uh, very difficult circumstances. Physical activity helps, as I've already said. Go to the Ortega paper, which shows how much physical activity can reduce mortality um, in relation to cardiovascular disease, mortality in relation to, to, to disease. Obesity has become a political issue. It's become a political issue because it's expensive. It's expensive, it's an economic issue, it's expensive... But I took a look at how expensive it was. It's 2%, nearly 3% of the national spend uh, would come in 2007, came from uh, treating obesity and the economic costs of lost time at work from obesity in the UK would be higher. Um, 4% of the national taxation comes from alcohol and cigarette tax. So the taxation of sins is being undermined by obesity. Of course, if this carries on increasing, I've also put numbers for defence spending, so it gives an idea of how much is spent on defence. So, 17, 2007, 17 billion um, NHS costs for all related diseases to obesity, compared to 32 billion um, for defence in 2007. Half of the defence budget. So, so you can't threaten the defence budget. Of course not. Also, medicalisation of obesity. In terms of thinking about how to deal with obesity. And so well, public health may be one thing, personal responsibility is another thing. But if you medicalize it, as in the United States, and this remains controversial, then, as in 2013, it's got broad implications for public health initiatives. That is, you're privatizing obesity and moving it into the realm of private solutions because it will stimulate pharmaceutical investment, it will stimulate surgery investment, it will stimulate 
food company company investment, in terms of you know the insurance industry, all of these things, you're moving the obesity discourse away from public health towards uh, to, 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 towards uh, uh, towards public health solutions. I'm going to do the rest of the world in three minutes and talk about environmental facts. And of course, you all know this. Obesogenic environments, how people live, types of food eating, high fat, palatable fast foods, the food industry, decline in physical activity, interactions between all of these things. This is Geelong, the archetype of obesogenic environments. Um, Geelong in Australia is a working class town, one hour out of Melbourne, where the car industry was the big thing. And it's where Boyd Swinburne, who produced the idea of the obesogenic environment, used to live and work until his department moved into Melbourne and so on. I always see Geelong as the place to think about obesogenic environments. It used to be a proud wool town. Then the motor industry came. That's in decline. The whole town is in decline. One industry, small numbers of industries operating there, and the proliferation of fast food motor transport governing the way that the town has, 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 has developed has led to a con- conflation of a whole range of things. But without uh, the decline in, uh, in, in these industries and the move out of, of, of wealthier people, it becomes a place where uh, obesity is difficult to, to resist. Fast food is often blamed, but fast food... It's everywhere. It's in Geelong, but it's also in India. Um, I took this picture in Calcutta, which shows one shop which serves not just talis and parathas, you know, traditional Indian fare, but also pastries, cakes, shakes, cold coffee, rolls, momos, sandwiches, pizzas. It does everything. It's not uncommon. You go anywhere in India, you'll find places that will claim to do everything. There'll be a particular version of these things. But fast food is not um, something that's particular to Western countries. And bringing Western fast food into India can't be... You can't put responsibility on that for emergence of obesity in India because... India has got 2,000 years' history of fast food, even before the West reached it. Um, celebrity, of course, is something that is embedded in the obesogenic environment. Shura Khan, he owns the Calcutta Knight Riders, if anybody's into cricket. Uh, he owns that club, uh, good Calcutta boy, very, very wealthy by any standards. Uh, Beyonce, both of them promoting um, being a cool man or being a cool woman, um, <coughs> drinking these, these fizzy drinks. In reaction to that, cities like New York City um, uh, put on adverts like this, are you pouring on the pounds, don't drink yourself fat, public health messages that try and resist all the billions that have been pumped into advertising than branding particular kinds of commodities as being particularly cool, which are not particularly healthy and might well be obesogenic. Okay, Wallace Simpson said you can never be too rich or too thin. Well... In rich countries, that's certainly true. There's never negative implications of being obese in the Western countries, according to education, employment, income, occupation, all of these things. Um, people who are wealthier, people who have better jobs, and people who are better educated are more likely to be thin than people who don't have those things. In the developing world, nations with medium and low human development index, in many places it's quite the opposite. 
the changes in perceptions of obesity happen across the modernization of a, of, of, of a nation. So you could go back 150 years in the UK, 100 years perhaps, even 100 years in the United States, and being fat was not seen as a negative thing. It becomes a negative thing. That embodied capital can be, I carry my wealth in my body, I can intimidate people with my huge body. Because I've taken a lot of time and energy to invest in the production of that body. Stigma and obesity, most importantly in the employment uh, area. Weight-based disparities in employment, wage penalties, um, weight bias and job evaluations and so on. Inequality, if you look, um, Kate Pickett looked at um, the Gini index, the ratio of top to bottom income earners in different countries, the United States at the top, Japan at the bottom, and the, the percentage of obesity more or less shows a correlation between the level of economic inequality across the wealthy nations of the world. And of course, there's lots of other stuff going on. It's not just, it's not just about that. I'm going to skip India. I'm going to talk very briefly about Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. Um, because um, the timing and onset of obesity, that's me telling me I need to finish this lecture. It's because I talk too long, too much. Uh, that politics matters in terms of obesity production. And uh, Myself, without an offer, Richard Petschy, the economist had an offer, uh, produced something called the Welfare Regime's Hypothesis of Obesity. It's not perfect, but it's suggesting that there is an insecurity uh, component to obesity. The way we live our lives now results in huge levels of insecurity, and one way through that, if you cannot smoke, you cannot drink, you cannot take drugs, the major addictive drug that people can comfort themselves with is cheap food and it's very easy to do, and we're evolutionally predisposed to consume that particular food. I won't go into that. Take a look at the paper. It's got holes in it, so you know, find those holes. It's not a perfect paper, but it's the first one to suggest that this might be, might be the issue. I'm going to finish with just a little anecdote about Hurricane Sandy and your jeans being too tight. Okay, November 2012, two years ago, just something from, from the media. Okay, and what happened... So I'm still talking too long, sorry about that. With any sense of daily routine shattered, many afflicted residents came to believe that the old rules no longer applied. They ate and drank what they wanted, tomorrow be damned. A phenomenon familiar to any seasoned traveller. You know the junk you eat when you get off a long flight. And you know you shouldn't, but oh God, do you care? No, you do not care. And that includes the best educated person who knows they should know better. Uh, Times Square, with this teeming restaurant chain, suddenly looked as intoxicating as Montparnasse to beleaguered residents of Chelsea and Soho. Some forays there, they parted with end of days abandon. Other downtowners searched for food like post apocalyptic survivors hoarding whatever they could find. Cheap Chinese, bad pizza, on food runs for civilization. Back home, they hungrily doubled up on portions, knowing that leftovers would not keep anywhere. Waiting for the storm seemed to make everybody want to do three things. Watch Homeland, eat and tweet. And once the power went out downtown, the only thing left to do was eat and eat. Suddenly the svelte editor of this particular blog was gorging like Falstaff, whipping up on her gas range five-egg omelet, omelet breakfast or roast chicken with every vegetable in the crisper dinners. Miss Leventhal, the blogger, said sheepishly, what you eat in the dark doesn't count. <laughs> okay, thank you.